Here on County 911. Do you have an emergency? I'm trying to collect a weapon from my son. I'm more fearful of the guys that are out here with him. He does have some white nationalists that are out here with him. And who is your son? His name is Tristan. I let him live in my house with my ex-wife. Now he's got a bunch of white nationalists live with him. This is Season 2 of Sounds Like Hate, a podcast series from the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm Geraldine Moriba. And I'm Jamila Paxima. We are examining where we come from, the history we accept as truth, and how sometimes our views influence the people we love the most towards violent extremist beliefs. A warning to our listeners, this episode contains offensive and violent content. I guess there's some rally up here recently. My son's almost 18, but he said it's illegal for him to walk around at this rally with an SR-556, which is, you know, I don't know if you know what that is. It's an AR-15. Yeah, I know exactly what it is. I was working that day. I know exactly what you're talking about. And yes, he could walk around, and he did walk around with it. So, um, and it's legal. It is. It's legal. It's open carry. He can do it. If he was to do something stupid and with all the news going on, but I also worry about my son's life. How many guns are do you say that you're responsible for that you're trying to collect, or what did you collect already? I got like a couple of shotguns, uh, a couple 22s, um, what was it? Uh, There's a 22 handgun, and like this little cool little Derringer gun, the 22. The big boy, the SR-556. SR-556? Is that the, that's the assault rifle? Yeah, that's the rifle that, I, that he was marching around with. That's Eric Webb talking to a 911 operator in the summer of 2020. 911. Uh, yeah, I just called you uh, about Tristan, and now the boys, the two of them, came out and attacked me in the car. Justin was with them. Okay, I thought you, I thought you left, sir. No, I was. I told my ex-wife you have until 11 or 11 o'clock, or else I'm going to start the eviction process. Are you safe right now? down the road about a quarter mile. Okay, I do not want you to go back to that house. Do you understand me? Okay. No, but I can't leave my 16-year-old in this situation. Did he actually assault you? No, he tried to. I was driving down the street, tried to take a swing at me at my car. And he's laughing like like the Joker laughed. Okay. They both came out here. Him and the 31-year-old came to my car. Do not approach the house by yourself. Webb is the father of Tristan. When his son was 17 years old, he lived with about five other men together on the Webb family farm. They were all members of The Base, an accelerationist neo-Nazi group. In season one, we reported on their violent plans to prepare for the collapse of America. Webb's property had become a fortified compound where white supremacists with the base strategized and trained. The last time Webb checked in, he was chased away as he backed out of the driveway. One of the armed men lunged at him through the open driver's window of his truck. He had such rage in his eyes 
but that turned to fear in that split second because he knew I wasn't stopping. He let go and rolled, and I called the police. Less than an hour later, the police arrived. One of the deputies came out and we talked. He said, what, did he hit you? Did he damage your car? No. So there's really no police report to file. After the incident, he didn't return for another four months, not until the FBI raided his property on October 29, 2020. He agreed to let us go along with him to see what remained. We are the only journalists granted exclusive access inside the final headquarters of the neo-Nazi hate group, The Base. Almost as soon as Tristan moved into the farmhouse, he invited other like-minded, already radicalized men to join him. Their ages ranged from 17 to 31. There's a lot of gasoline cans everywhere. I know. I bought a bunch for, you know, like I said, I had generators. (sighs) Okay. Inside the house, we saw no weapons. Most likely, they had been seized by the FBI. What remained were empty handgun cases and ammunition boxes scattered on the floor. This is where Tristan's room was. In Tristan's room, there were three stickers with racist phrases on his mirror and an additional five on the window. It's okay to be white. Hate is not a crime. And on the back of his bedroom door, he wrote white power with swastikas on either side. I was hoping Tristan would take up plumbing or like he doesn't really want to go to college. I just, how can you live like this? This house looks like it's been abandoned for like 20 years. Doesn't this hurt? It's disgusting. It's, I think of my dad and, you know, he loved being out in the country. And when you see just trash. What I was hoping Tristan was going to do with more young men as labor is clear all this out but it's like it's almost in worse shape than it was before upstairs we entered watkins room the den of the local leader of the base who was arrested by the fbi his walls were painted black this is justin's room And there's a swastika on the bathroom door. There was a large mound of clothes on the floor. A stained mattress was overturned. The room smelled like cat urine. There were dirty dishes in the drawers and unopened packages of spam lunch meat singles in the closet. I really do think I thought it would just be a bunch of guys lifting weights, getting in shape, shooting guns. And I grew up that way. I wasn't thinking about the possibilities. But they were doing more than lifting weights and shooting guns. The web property had become a hate camp with paramilitary training for a race war. This looks like a dark place where there was no good. 
Webb had expectations his 17-year-old son and the other men would work the land and care for animals. And this is where they plan to have their pigs. They had three pigs. They had to get, they had to get rid of them because of COVID and they were eating too much. They, uh, I guess they killed them. Yeah, cool, big fan of that. But they killed them and you slaughtered them and ate them? And no, they just slaughtered them. Like, I don't know how, I didn't ask too many questions. And that's the problem. Webb needed to ask more questions. Questions about the compound his son had set up for white supremacists. And questions about their paramilitary training plans. He took no responsibility for any of it. Hi, how's it going? This is Tristan. Hey, Tristan. Thank you for calling. Yeah. It's okay that I record our conversation for your interview? Uh, sure. You're 18, right? So you yeah. can authorize this on your own since you're officially an adult. Yep. I spoke to Tristan about what was going on at the compound. He says his mother and brother moved out of the house a few weeks before the FBI raid occurred. He says the situation was not what he had hoped for. They weren't plotting anything at all, not in an offensive manner, just an action to get things done in training-wise, whether you get robbed and you know, or if you have Antifa at your doorstep. And who do you think would come and attack your property? We weren't too far from Detroit or Flint or Bay City, so... We uh, were more preparing for migrations of people, of city dwellers, or things like that. We will stop the steal. It's a mistake to ignore or dismiss Tristan's extremist racist views. The insurrection on the U.S. Capitol indicates his beliefs are broadly held and perhaps even normalized. Absolutely. Peter Simi is a professor of sociology at Chapman University in Southern California. When you see what happened January 6th and the number of people who turned out, in other words, that were willing to travel from all parts of the country during a a pandemic, uh, nonetheless, for the initial rally that then uh, turns into the insurrection, that in and of itself should tell us something. He has extensively studied formers, people who leave the violent far right, including Wade Michael Page, an army veteran who fatally shot six people and wounded four others at a Sikh temple in 2012. Simi is also a board member of Life After Hate, an organization helping to support other formers. I'm not sure how long we can sustain our attention and really confront this problem for the deeply ingrained problem that it is. Why does it continue to persist? It's part of the founding of our country. You know, it was written into the Constitution. Many states entered the Union. For instance, the state of Oregon entered as a whites-only territory. This, it's part of the country's DNA. And until we tackle it in that kind of respect, until we have that kind of truth, We can't get to any kind of reconciliation that might really start to eat away at the 
persistence of the problem because we don't ever get to the truth of the matter. We imagine extremists to look a certain way, to maybe not be able to speak clearly or coherently, or to look extremely dangerous. But many people look like your coworker, your colleague, your classmate, your neighbor. Until we stop imagining that it's not our neighbors, it's not our family members, it's not our coworkers, then we're not going to really be able to confront this problem the way it needs to be confronted. we get started here so this will be typically is run like 30 minutes up to an hour depending on how the conversation goes or what questions you might have we started this investigation by listening to 83 hours of secret audio recordings made inside the vetting room of the base we used machine learning to analyze what was said by over 100 men on these calls and found that 88% of the ages mentioned by recruits were under 30. The youngest recruits said they were 17. Tristan's call was typical of the youngest recruits. I've gotten probably five or six solid guys that are definitely gonna help out and move up and join the community. There's another recruit from those secret calls we've been investigating. Usually I'd, I'd probably start by giving my name, but I don't know if that's the best idea. Um, like Tristan, he I'm became a, radicalized in high school. As a young white nationalist, he joined multiple groups. His pseudonym is Chad Bradley. Oh, Chad, we can't, we can't hear you. His real name is Chris Hood, and he is 22. So let's just start out with a general question and just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Yeah, your background, your experience, uh, you said, in, in activism is, is pretty impressive. Well, can you go into that a little bit more? Ronaldo Nazaro, the former leader of the base, asked most of the questions on their vetting calls. In this one, Hood claims to know one to two dozen potential white supremacists eager for paramilitary training who he could help recruit. Can you just tell us what groups, what you're a member of now and what you have been a member of in the past? So I was in the Proud Boys, but as of now, uh, I'm like the regional director for the Northeast for Patriot Front. We've definitely been wanting to get into more of the, you know, survivalist or self-defense type of stuff that, you know, we're definitely used to the idea of like traveling far distances to meet with other like networks of guys that do similar things and, you know, planning things that kind of veer, you know, out of the lines of legality. You know, as of recently, we did this, like, confrontation, not like an anti-for rally. And that didn't pan out well because of, like, legal reasons. So it sounds like you, uh, your crew has sort of reached, uh, like, the end of your rope. I don't know. We've definitely got 
disillusioned with, you know, the standard schedule of PF. I mean, I guess not getting into too much detail, you know, there's not a piece, peaceable solution to, you know, our, our racist problems, then, you know, there's a numerous amount of actions that you could take. Yeah, and, and you're, you definitely you know, hit the nail on the head with what we're aiming for. People wanting to be active in real life. You know, I, I mean, we definitely um, are pretty militant. But we also, I think, all would agree with, with you, with your assessment that, you know, we're not going to be like storming Washington, D.C., right? I mean, it's like, uh, just we don't have the, the, the numbers to, to do that. I mean, not now, at least, you know, if ever, but we want things to accelerate. You know, we want things to get worse in the United States. Trying to impress, Hood assured Nazaro he'd help him grow the base with white supremacists from New England. Well, I have about, I think it's a 28 guys in the Northeast area, so between Mass, New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont. They're going to go, you know, be like, oh shit, like he's recruiting for like the base now or whatever. I think there's four or five, definitely. And there's definitely more that I think would be interested, interested in like formally joining or, or, you know, participating at the very least in like meetups or anything like that. Immediately after this vetting call, Nazaro shared his excitement about Hood with fellow base members, who he often referred to as his comrades. Coming from Patreon being in that. Yeah, he's a pretty, I would say he's a pretty big one. Do you find this programming valuable? You can support this project right now, along with the important efforts of the Southern Poverty Law Center, a nonprofit organization that works to dismantle white nationalism and bolster our inclusive democracy. Simply visit splcenter.org and click the donate button. There you'll find all the quick and easy ways to support the production of this content and join in SPLC's movement for a more just and equitable society. I think I first picked him up as part of a Proud Boys data collection. He's in several of my databases um, for using social media as Chris Hood. Megan Squire is a professor of data science, cybersecurity, and online extremism at Elon University. Her internet records on Hood go back to 2018, when he was still a senior in high school. He was in a white culture and heritage group, 12,000 people. Looks like he was also going down as a maybe for an event called Rally for the Republic. And if I recall, that one was in the summer of 2017. Chris Hood has moved between organizations, some that he claims to be the leader of locally, some he's a member, but he goes between multiple organizations. Is that typical of these guys, these extremists? Yeah, it can be. So just one second and I'll run a query. Um, If you just give me one second. 
don't worry, this will be worth it. Okay, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so it looks like Chris was into a Proud Boys group, an Alt Knights group, which is the wing of, like that's the fighting wing, the street fighting wing of Proud Boys back in that time frame. He was in another Proud Boys vetting group specific to the Northeast region of the country. He was in a, uh, according to this, he was in a League of the South group, which I think is really interesting because that's a neo-confederate kind of the South will rise again type of group. Um, typically not super full of people from Massachusetts. He was in a white culture and heritage group. That's a pretty good variety of groups. And this is in the 2017 timeframe. So what we can tell from that is that he has taken that sort of seed list of groups and he's um, expanded that by the 2020, 2021 timeframe. So now he's in not just Proud Boys and sort of white culture groups, but he's, you know, extended that to Patriot Front and then ultimately to these um, national socialist and, and accelerationist type of groups. So that's a radicalization trajectory or pathway. Is that what happens? It's a, a rabbit hole and you get in and then you go deeper and deeper. And is that the normal trajectory? Yeah, that's a common trajectory. Another data point that I didn't say a second ago is that one of the roles listed for one of the Proud Boys groups shows that he was an administrator. That means he's um, connecting to the ideas more. In February of 2019, after an altercation with the police in Boston, Chris Hood was one of three fascists who were arrested. According to a police report, Hood had a knife and another had brass knuckles. The group had a stack of flyers which stated, Keep America American. It also said, quote, Report any and all illegal aliens. They are not immigrants, they are criminals, unquote and it provided a number to a tip line for the Department of Homeland Security and ICE. Are you gonna run? Come on, Mr. Hood, you're gonna run? You wanted the attention, let's talk. In response to this hateful propaganda, the Boston mayor, Marty Walsh, State Senator Joseph Boncor, Representative Adrian Madara, and Councillor Lydia Edwards sent out this joint statement via Twitter. Boston rejects hatred, racism, and promotion of white supremacy in all forms. Those seeking to promote bigotry will always fail in the face of unity that is stronger, lasting, and resilient. I can't remember, I think I sent you guys the address on Hood's next secret recording with the base, they planned his first in-person meetup with members at a diner in Hartford, Connecticut. By this point, Hood had quit Patriot Front and was actively recruiting for the base. Here, Nazaro is discussing his concerns about Hood with other members. So he, he had come, when he first joined this kind of mad blitz to get everyone he knew to join the base. Keith Chris did message me um, and said that given his legal situation, he's he's out on bail, uh, Chris is, um, from his 
run in with the Boston PD, had a knife on him that I guess is illegal in Boston. Hood's upcoming court appearance didn't slow his recruiting drive for the base. It's unclear how many men he recommended altogether. Here's one who said he served in the Navy. I am a white, proud white nationalist, second generation European. Um, Okay, so do you know that we are considered a domestic terrorism uh, group by the FBI? No, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. Are you? Yeah, yes. Yeah, we are. Awesome. And how long uh, have you known Chris? Mm, About a year. About a year. I met him him through uh, Patreon. He reached out to me. At his hearing, Hood was represented by Augustus Invictus, a reputed white nationalist lawyer and an insider at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Invictus served time in South Carolina for domestic violence against his ex-wife. Hood paid a mere $500 bail for the incident with the Boston police. And in the end, the charges were dropped. In response to the George Floyd demonstrations in Boston, Chris Hood came out of the shadows. This time he was with a new group, the National Socialist Club 131, or NSC 131. It's another leaderless organization, and one of 12 hate groups identified in Massachusetts in 2020. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, NSC 131 has 13 chapters in the U.S. and others in Germany, Hungary, and France. So who do you represent? What's your name? I'm Chris. I represent the National Social Club. Okay, and what is that? We are a pro-white, street-oriented fraternity. Pro-white, street-oriented fraternity. I think that's all you really need to know. Everything else you can see out here today, what we're about. So that's why it's NSC, Nationalist Social Club. FBI, FBI, make sure you note that down. And we're going to the Capitol. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. Sometimes the evidence of what extremists are plotting as they move from group to group is right there waiting to be discovered. There was another prospective Boston member on the base's vetting calls looking for a new group. This one used the pseudonym Descendant. He claimed to be a member of the Proud Boys. What he stated on his call shows storming the U.S. Capitol building is an idea that had been floating around. What really needs to happen right now is about 200,000 true patriots need to march up into fucking into the Capitol building and just kill everybody fucking in it. And then turn around and say, look, we're done. This is what's going to happen from this point on. Because our, our forefathers gave us the keys to the kingdom and told us what we needed to do.
In October of 2020, right before the election, police were contacted for a series of stickers which showed up and a recruiting flyer for NSC 131. Two New Hampshire towns, Brookline and Milford, were targeted. Milford police captain Craig Fry scraped a sticker off a street sign himself and then reported it to the FBI. We don't need those stickers around here. The Nationalist Social Club, also known as the 131 Crew. It's very disturbing. If it's targeted at one group of people, it's a hate crime, and that, you know, and that can go state or federal. So far, Captain Fry has located one of the stickers, but it appears this flyer, the one calling for white men to organize a local crew, was already taken down. Squire's research confirms Hood and a small group of Massachusetts white supremacists were in Washington, D.C. We found NSC-131 New England had posted a night image of the Capitol on January 5, 2021, before the attack on the Capitol building, with the message, NSC New England is in Washington, D.C. to ensure white safety. It also said, we are not here to support Donald Trump. Yeah, I started looking at them because they're on Telegram as well. There's 800 people on the Telegram channel. Here's a screen share. Um, where's my Telegram window? There it is. Could you describe this photo? Um, yeah, it's got a guy holding the camera. In the foreground is their NSC 131 calling card with the strikethroughs on the communist ham, hammer and sickle and also, interestingly, a dollar sign. And then behind is this mayhem of the Capitol being overrun and just crowds of Trump supporters and MAGA types and all that stuff. This is a photo to deliberately tag the location on January 6th at the insurrection. Yep, that's what it looks like. Oh, they stole a Capitol Police. Um, so this is a, a helmet. There's sticker on top of it. So somehow somebody went to the insurgency in D.C. and walked away with a U.S. Capitol Police helmet, a souvenir. It's a trophy shot the same way when they stood up the wrong house and pointed at the address and took a photo. It's a bounty photo of a, or a trophy shot, whatever you want to call it, of like... It's designed for for them to share amongst themselves and kind of take take pride in that they accomplished this thing. In this case, stealing the gear of a Capitol Police officer, which, by the way, is all marked up and smashed. Oh, and it looks like they stole a face shield from police as well. And this is only tagged with the name of the group, so we don't know who posted it. Right. It's been shared a lot, though. Um, on Telegram, you can tell that because the number of views is 13,000, but there's only 1,300 people in this channel, so it's been shared outside the channel pretty extensively. Chances are this group, NSC-131, will go under. Another will replace it, and Hood will move on to yet another group. Sociologist Simi agrees. 
when these groups fracture, there's always other groups that a person can run to. And so just because one group fractures doesn't mean everybody now disengages. Some people just simply re-engage with other groups. So if we were able to take advantage of group fractures and provide the kinds of supports that might keep those individuals from just simply re-engaging with another group, that could be, I think, very helpful. Okay, take a deep breath. Ready? Uh, okay. Shitstorm, a little shitstorm. Okay, so I have a 911 call on my, on my line. His name is Eric Webb. So Eric is here right now. He called his son Tristan, which is one of the three that were here at the protest with the big long guns, okay? Yep. He said, Tristan, I want you to give me all my guns that are registered to me. I don't want any part of any of my guns that are registered to me to be involved in anything harmful or bad. Can he even do anything because Trister's a minor and he's only 17? Can he have that gun? I don't know. I don't know. The FBI's been out there and stuff, and they didn't take them away, so apparently they can't have them in their, have them in their own home. Okay, so tell him that he's going to have to take him to court to get the gun back. Yeah, he can take him to court or something to get the gun. I'm not getting in the middle of that harness mess with those freaks. Tell him just get out of there. Altogether, Tristan was in the base for a year. He said something about the negativity of it all. He didn't want to die for, he didn't want to just die for nothing. The FBI released a list of items they seized from the base's Michigan hate camp. They found a dozen gas masks, a machete, knives, and swords with Nazi symbols, several bullet surveillance cameras, tactical gear, and a guitar with white nationalist stickers. Missing from the FBI list were firearms they likely seized. In Michigan, handguns do not have to be registered. It's okay to open carry if individuals have lawful intent to use them. Tristan claims he did everything by the book. I mean, we would follow gun laws to the T at the house. I mean, we would... Every time we'd travel, we'd have our guns and gun safes, ammo, um, separated. Two weeks prior to the raid in Bad Axe, the FBI had already arrested 13 members of another white power militia group in Michigan for conspiring to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Tristan may have left the base, but his beliefs haven't changed. He says what he really wanted to build was a homestead, for whites only, a compound where they could train for a race war, plant their own crops, and stockpile foods for their own kind of people. Yeah, we had barrels and barrels of um, freeze-dried food, of sealed bags of beans and rice and sugar and water purification supplies and gas storage. Eric Webb says he may be responsible for sparking the prepping interest in his son and worries that maybe he should have focused on the addictions and dependencies within the family. He says addiction continues to manifest in every generation, starting with his own father. His addiction was sexual. He had to have a woman in his life. That's, how, that's why I'm divorced, because that's how you get love. I say, just don't fall for that fleshly addiction. Carol Teagarden, Tristan's grandmother, 
agrees her family has addictions and believes hate is an addiction too. I was an alcoholic and then I got sober. I've been sober 32 years, but I remember, you know, what addiction feels like. And I think they're both addicted to that. To what, I think Eric's addicted to this QAnon stuff. And I think Tristan's addicted to the um, what he calls, what is it? Uh, it's the same thing as white supremacy. It's national socialism. I think he's addicted to it. And addicted to the people surrounding it and addicted to the drama of it. Simi's research reveals how the process of leaving a hate group can be much like breaking an addiction. Based on life history interviews with former members, one of the things that stood out to us uh, during the interviews and the analysis of the um, data was that in about a third of the cases, individuals made references specifically to being a feeling like they were addicted to hate. But an even larger number, about two-thirds, described essentially unwanted and involuntary kind of relapses, even if momentarily, back into kind of hating and believing and feeling in terms of, of how they felt as a white supremacist. There are going to be people who are listening. They're going to say this is a cop-out. It's a cop-out to call white supremacy an addiction. How do you respond to that? I don't disagree necessarily. We're not suggesting it be treated like a medical problem per se. And when you think about it as a public health issue, you don't just address it as a medical problem. Public health issues are dealt with in sociological ways. It's an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approach that looks at social problems from a variety of different perspectives. And of course, prevention is key from a public health approach. And certainly we would do very well to invest a lot more in thinking about how to prevent the problem of white supremacy. And I want to add another layer to this. When we think about whether there may be some addictive properties in terms of hate and being involved in a hate group, we should also be thinking about this at a societal level. In other words, when you look at our country's history and how enmeshed in white supremacy, in fact, it's at the core of our founding, there's, there's an argument to be made that our, at a societal level, we've been addicted to white supremacy. We've been addicted to hate because of how central role it's played in our country's history and the deep psychological, at a, at a collective level, impact it's had and how entrenched it is. Now, Webb says he should have reminded Tristan of the truth about their heritage. Well, my great-great-grandmother was Jewish. Tristan, that means that Tristan has Jewish blood in him. He doesn't want to believe that. So now you're regretting it. Now you're regretting you let them be here. But you let it go on. You knew it was happening. I mean, you knew that... I'm a bit, I'm a bit naive. I thought, hey, fix things up. They can have their stupid beliefs. But looking back, I wish I would have just said no. The question is, what can parents do to prevent radicalization or help a child who's already in the space? This requires a certain kind of awareness, a certain kind of uh, understanding that these uh, threats exist, 
uh, that these groups are widely circulating. This is not something of the past. It's something very much uh, a contemporary issue that we face. Simi says there are things parents can do. I can tell you just individually, you know, I have a 21-year-old son. He, at one point in high school, for example, became in, you know, really kind of started listening to a lot of uh, so-called death metal. Well, you know, that uh, immediately triggered for me, well, okay, death metal for the most part is fairly harmless, uh, relatively speaking. But there is a segment of, of death metal called NSBM, National Socialist Black Metal. This is also the genre of music Tristan Webb was listening to in high school. And it, it is part of this larger subculture of death metal. And so what can happen is a person, a young person, starts out listening to just regular you know, death metal, and then at some point may wander accidentally or, or not accidentally into the National Socialist death metal. And of course, the National Socialist death metal folks are looking for that to happen. So when I meet, when I found out about that, I immediately started talking with him about, you know, this. And I started finding out, you know, I, I would listen to the music with him and talk to him about the lyrics and talking to him about the games he's playing, talking to him about the kind of communication that's happening um, on these games. Because a lot of times that's where it's ha- It's not the game itself, but it's the fact that they're able to communicate with, you know, the kids that are playing these games are communicating with each other. And that sometimes includes uh, recruiters for white supremacist groups who are, who are looking to bring uh, young people into the fold. And more recently, he's gotten into mixed martial arts, which is another subculture where white supremacists have developed quite a foothold of both in the United States and, and in Europe. I, I think the common denominator, hopefully what's helpful from what I'm saying for, for parents, is it, it, it's about conversations with our kids. It's about having very direct conversations, asking them questions, not how is your day going, but much more specific types of questions uh, about their life and about what they're doing. If you're a parent of somebody who's already in the space and you can't get in and you can't identify what they're receiving because you don't have the passwords, what do you do? Once that happens, obviously the the level of difficulty increases exponentially in terms of what parents, uh, how parents can respond, how much they can effectively intervene. So that's why early prevention is is so important. What do parents do? Well, one of the places I think we need a lot more investment in terms of our infrastructure on community-based resources to help parents in this situation. And we just, as a nation, we haven't invested in our infrastructure in in this realm, for the most part, tremendously underfunded. And uh, there's not enough of them, and there's not enough availability. Fortunately, Simi says his own son is doing well. I am worried that uh, in this younger generation now of folks who are getting radicalized, those background characteristics aren't as necessary as they used to be to get radicalized because of the power of social media and you know access through gaming platforms and frankly because it seems like society has moved in this direction in terms of the mainstreaming part and you have people you know in the white house and congress and state legislators who are talking you know speaking this language and so young people this is all kind of filtering down and i think young white people in particular obviously it's more acceptable it's more acceptable. But if something's normal and acceptable, it's really not like you don't need anything for radicalization to happen because all they're doing essentially is adopting what's 
what's been deemed as acceptable. That name gets further and further away from China as opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. African Americans, Hispanics are living in hell because it's so dangerous. The Black Lives Matter, if you look at what's going on with the bats and the, the, a lot of thugs. Many of the principles of radical Islam are incompatible with Western values and institutions. What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and white like supremacists. Proud boys. And right proud proud boys. Stand back and stand by. Former President Donald Trump didn't start a movement. He emboldened racists and extremists who were lying in wait. Well, I think what we're seeing is the movement of extremist ideas and strategy into a larger part of the political right in this country. Cassie Miller is a senior research analyst at the Southern Poverty Law Center. She agrees the most critical solution is prevention. We can prosecute people who are associated with these groups when they have committed crimes like we've seen with the base. Um, And that is one strategy, but that can't be our entire strategy because that's only dealing with the end results of radicalization. What's going to be more effective is if we try to prevent radicalization from happening in the first place. So one of the things we can do is, is really invest in research. Um, and develop programming um, that will stop people from becoming radicalized in the first place. And this depends on community-based solutions. Um, It depends on stopping the spread of misinformation. Um, You know, and it depends on creating a society where far-right extremists have fewer grievances to try and weaponize. Um, You know, listening to the people who become members of the base so many of them felt like they had no future. Um, So they were really willing to sacrifice everything because they felt like they had nothing to lose. Um, And that's something that is extremely sad. And I think that we need to view them with with some form of empathy. Um, You know, and what we can do is build a more secure and more stable society where people can raise their families, they can access healthcare and housing and education, not worry about plummeting into debt, When I spoke with Tristan last, he was in New Orleans. He said he was there to decompress with a woman named Gigi. They met online. He met a girl, and she's not into this stuff, and she's just a really good influence. I I really believe she's a positive force in his life. So I spoke with Gigi to see what sort of positive force she is in Tristan's life. Hi, Gigi. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. What would you say that your personal faith and ideology are? National Socialist. Gigi is 19 years old and the second white supremacist girlfriend we were told about. She says she's originally from Russia and is now living in Louisiana, studying criminal justice. She also mentions her brother was incarcerated for a hate crime. My uh, oldest brother um, 
got uh, we went through something very similar and uh so it's not like this is like a a first time thing it's not like it was something very shocking for me to hear when he was contacted by the FBI in New Orleans she knew what to expect she'd seen it before so i'm sharing this with you not to bust your bubble but i think you you ought to know that your son has found another like-minded woman who believes in this stuff. And he's not away from it. And I don't think she's the one who's going to pull him out. That young girl worries me. I still have hope. What's the path out? How do you get your kids out of this? There's only one path out, in my opinion. It, it, when you boil it simply down, love over hate. Webb uses platitudes to answer questions about responsibility. What he'd never explained is exactly what he or anyone else are trying to do now to hold Tristan accountable and pull him out of this extremist mindset. The last time we spoke with a Webb family, we learned Eric sold the family farm. And as for Tristan, he and Gigi are talking about getting married. Look out for updates from us on the criminal cases against the base members actively being prosecuted across the country. In our next episode of Sounds Like Hate, we report on one woman's mission to relocate a centuries-old monument of a Confederate soldier from the front of the Lauderdale County Courthouse in Alabama. Oh, this one was interesting. If you decide to riot in my neighborhood, just remember, sticks and stones may break my windows, but hollow points expand inside you. This is the new way to burn crosses on your yard. These are complicated stories about people who hold on to false histories and terroristic ideologies and draw boundaries that are skin deep. If you are a parent or caregiver concerned about online radicalization, visit SPLC or The Peril Project at American University to obtain your handbook, Building Resilience and Confronting Risk in the COVID-19 Era. And if anyone on these recordings happen to be someone you might know, or if you have a tip you'd like us to investigate, send an email to soundslikehate at protonmail.ch. If you know someone who has experienced a hate incident or crime, please contact the appropriate local authorities or elected official. You can also document what happened at splcenter.org slash report hate. This is Sounds Like Hate, an independent audio documentary brought to you by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Produced by Until 20 Productions. I'm Jamila Paxima. And I'm Geraldine Moriba. Remember to subscribe to find out when new episodes are released. Please rate and review. It really helps. And thanks for listening. <laughs>